Good afternoon. My name is Jim Husson. I'm Boston College's Senior Vice President for University Advancement, and I'm pleased to welcome you to today's Beacon Leadership Conversation. Earlier this month, Boston College sent a letter to our community announcing a four-part plan to address issues related to racism and racist behavior in the United States. Our conversation today focuses on the first component of that plan, the upcoming Boston College Forum on Racial Justice in America. We'll also touch today on how the legacy of the Reconstruction era continues to have an impact on society, and finally, on the role that higher education can play in fostering dialogue and bridging divides that have long challenged our country. Joining us for this conversation are two of BC's leading thinkers on matters related to the law, history, and race in America. Vincent Rougeau has served as Dean of the Boston College Law School for the past nine years and was named as the inaugural director of the BC Forum on Racial Justice. Dean Rougeau speaks and writes extensively on legal education reform and is widely considered to be an expert in Catholic social thought. His research is focused on the relationship between religious identity and notions of democratic citizenship in multicultural societies. He's also the president-elect of the Association of American Law Schools. Heather Cox Richardson is a history professor in the Morrissey College of Arts and Sciences, a regular contributor to news publications and broadcasts, and an author of numerous books about American politics, political ideology, race, and power. Her latest is How the South Won the Civil War, Oligarchy, Democracy, and the Continuing Fight for the Soul of America. Professor Richardson also writes a popular daily newsletter titled Letters from an American, which she describes as a chronicle of today's political landscape that seeks to understand not just the present, but how we got here. Finally, a housekeeping note. In past webinars, we've tried to include questions posed by attendees during the discussion. Today, with the help of many questions that have already come to us via email, and also because of the sheer number of you joining us, we're going to be foregoing real-time Q&A so that we can devote our full hour to what I know will be a far-ranging conversation. And with that, let me now welcome Dean Vincent Rougeau and Professor Heather Cox Richardson to today's Beacon Leadership Conversation. Hello friends, thanks for being here with us. And before we get to the topic, we have a lot of ground to cover today. I just wanna start uh, as I always try to do, times of COVID, we're deep into this now. How are you both doing? Uh, how are you each doing? Where are you? And how have you been adjusting to all things physical distancing? Heather, you wanna go first? Well, I'm on the coast of Maine where my life is not unlike what it normally is. I live sort of off the grid a long way from the world when I can, when I don't have to be in Boston. Um, that being said, you know, I'm following the news incredibly closely. So I don't think I've ever in my life worked harder than I'm working now. So it's kind of a funny, well, no, I'm, I'm social distancing because this is what my life is always like. And on the other hand, but I'm working harder than I ever have before. Still, I'm one of the lucky ones. My family and friends are for the most part safe. Um, I'm very glad to hear that and, uh, and thank you for the work you're doing because it's so important and timely right now. And Vince, how about for you? How are you doing? Well, doing well and feeling very fortunate that, uh, you know, everyone in my family is safe and healthy. Uh, spending a lot of time with my adult children at home <laughs> who uh, we thought were, had fl flown from the nest for the most part, but uh, have been with us, which has actually been a lovely uh, experience for the family. Uh, once we got uh, used to navigating uh, all of our, our needs. But, um, you know, a lot happening obviously on campus in terms of trying to think about uh, how we're going to reopen 
the, the law school and the university. Uh, but, uh, you know, same, just trying to spend a lot of time at home, being careful and, uh, you know, feeling very fortunate that we, you know, have the space and the resources to, uh, to take care of uh, ourselves and one another, but uh, also, you know, really concerned about the many people who don't. Yeah, as are we. And so I think on behalf of the three of us, let me say to all of you joining us, we hope you too are healthy and safe and managing well during this challenging time. And uh, I'll just start by thanking both of you for joining us in this conversation, because it is this strange interplay right now where I know you know, we may be a little bit isolated, but I hear how busy you are. So I'm grateful to you for giving us the time. And given that we have an hour, let's, let's dive in and talk about the issues at hand. And Vince, uh, why don't we start with the forum you're going to be directing? Um, maybe share a little bit about why we're launching a forum on racial justice in America. And in particular, why are we doing this now? Well, you know, I, I think the murder of George Floyd and, you know, that happening in the wake of so many similar tra tragedies prior, Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, the list is way too long. Uh, but given that we've been in a situation in this country where we've all been home and sort of locked in, uh, I think there was a recognition uh, that something was truly wrong. Uh, a broad sense of outrage arose across American society. Uh, when people saw that that video, excuse me, that video of George Floyd's uh, essentially an execution, an extrajudicial execution, um, and um, I think that outrage was reflected in our community here at BC. I mean, people uh, across our community—trustees, faculty, students, staff, administrators—all felt that the university needed to respond in some sort of, you know, concrete and transformative way. And I think Father Leahy recognized this at the time. And, uh, you know, after some conversations with many people, uh, he launched this idea of the forum. Uh, and he asked me if I'd be willing uh, to be the inaugural director because we all felt that uh, BC needed to make some kind of meaningful statement and to act in some sort of concrete way to uh, move this country forward uh, uh, in a sort of anti-racist direction. And Vince, you know, you've been, you know, I mentioned in your introduction, you've been in a leadership role for now for nearly a decade. We've had our share of challenges on campus and in the world around us. Uh, what about this time as it relates to BC's response felt different in terms of what you were hearing compared to other challenging situations you've experienced in your role as dean or as a leader on campus over the past 10 years? Well, I think in the past there'd been a lot of divergent ideas about what was the best approach to deal with issues involving race uh, on the campus and in the community. Uh, and, you know, we, we were doing some things, we weren't doing other things. And, uh, you know, there was a sort of ongoing tension around that and maybe an ongoing conversation. But this time, I think, um, you know, there was a sort of, a, 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 everyone seemed to be in concert around the notion that, that something much more significant needed to happen. Uh, so, I, I would say that we all believe that the university has hit a transformative moment and really needed to, to stand and be counted in a sense uh, as an institution that clearly understands that the fight for racial justice in this country involves Boston College. And it involves Boston College not only externally, but also internally, that work needs to be done uh, on our campus as well uh, to start thinking about uh, what racial justice sh should look like what an anti-racist position, you know, and I say anti-racist to mean that, you know, we all individually should be working uh, to 
undermine and uh, eliminate racism uh, in our in our country, in our culture, in our world. Uh, and uh, but we have to start by hearing from people on our own campus who've experienced racism and how it has disfigured their lives, how it has disfigured their experience as part of this community. Uh, and from that, you know, hear from them what kinds of things need to happen for uh, those wounds to be healed, for that, uh, for justice to be restored in their lives as member of this uh, members of this community. And then how do we move as an institution forward? Uh, what will we do? Uh, how will we marshal our institutional and academic resources to work toward dismantling structural racism in this country? And I think that means rejecting a notion that racism is primarily about individual acts and personal behavior, really saying this is a social justice problem, this is a, uh, a structural problem, and we have the resources institutionally to act and to do things that can start to dismantle that, those structures and push for justice in areas like income inequality, housing discrimination, education reform. We do these things as, as leaders in the academy and uh, we need to start working on them. But we first need to hear from people in our community here at the university and around us in greater Boston about what racism has done and how it, uh, how it can be healed. Can I, can I jump in here with a question about that? I know you've been really busy with everything going on with the virus and, and trying to work the university around it. But have you had time to actually take a look at what that might, what the, the, the forum might look like in the upcoming year? Yeah, actually, we've thought a little bit about it and I have some uh, early ideas. So I think the first step we want to take uh, goes to this uh, sort of uh, internal work. Uh, you know, I see this, the process is sort of in the classic Jesuit uh, pedagogical way of seeing, judging and acting. And seeing, in this case, I think involves some listening. And I think we'd like to do some listening work across the campus in the style of restorative justice or truth and reconciliation. You know, this hashtag that's going around Black at BC, not just at BC, at every major university, this is an experience. You're hearing stories that, you know, involve some real pain amongst our students, faculty, staff, other members of our community. And I think we need to spend some time listening to those stories in some sort of organized and ordered way. Uh, not so that people can try to fix what has happened or respond, so, but just to listen. So those folks can express themselves uh, around these issues. And then when we've heard from people to start thinking about, well, what have they suggested that we could do as an institution that would really uh, restore their faith in us and restore their faith in the, the quest for racial justice in the, this country? So I think the first thing we'll be doing is spending some time uh, on those conversations. Heather, you know, you wrote a book that in many ways hits on the path that got us to where we are today. Would you mind just sharing a little bit about the central argument of the book? You know, how did the South win the Civil War in your mind? And, and what's the main proposition of the book? And what have you learned from writing it? Well, the book really picks up with a, with a larger picture of a lot of what uh, the Dean was just saying. And that is the idea that embedded in American culture is an ideology that speaks to structural racism and sexism. And that we really have to grapple with that in order to make the good side of America, the idea of equality before the law and equality of access to resources ever come to fruition. The book argues really, it's an ideological book. It argues that the ideology of the United States 
uh, in the 1850s, the, the version of, a, um, of an American ideology that became the Confederate States of America, was one in which, uh, that, that drew directly from the founding fathers and said that in fact, you could not have equality in America without having inequality for women and people of color. And that ideology, the idea that society moves forward best when a few wealthy men, generally white men, move it and, and take take um, control of everybody else in society. That ideology was the motivating factor behind the Confederacy, and it theoretically should have been destroyed with the Civil War and with the countervailing argument that, in fact, America stands for equality of opportunity and equality of access to resources, no matter your gender or your race or your ethnicity. But because at that very moment, Americans from the East moved west of the Mississippi River into a land that really liked the idea of a hierarchical society because Euro-American settlers there had always reinforced hierarchies over women and people of color, indigenous peoples, Chinese, Mexicans, and Mexican-Americans, um, that that ideology uh, got a new foothold in society and since then has managed once again to move back into the East and to take over our political system. So what I was really arguing was that America's uh, devotion to equality before the law and equality of access to resources has always depended on denigrating people of color and women. And that until we grapple with that and recognize the extraordinary power that that othering gives to oligarchs to rise, our democracy will always be at risk. And it's not really, you know, sometimes people think of questions of justice for populations of color, black people, uh, brown people, and women as being somehow special interests. And letting those people have a foothold in American society is somehow um, uh, something that is not of interest to everyone or to the country in general. And what I was trying to argue is that in fact, the, the continued othering of people of color and women is a profound threat to American democracy itself. So even if you have no contact with people of color or women or whatever, I don't know how you would manage to do that, this is still a question of vital concern to you because so long as we have that, we will always let oligarchs have the, liter the, the rhetorical tools and the language to destroy democracy. And you, know, you point out that in many ways, this issue can trace its roots right back to the founding of the country, that in, in fact that although the writings of many of the founders were espousing the Lockean ideals of enlightenment, that in fact their actions were speaking to an interest in concentrating power and limiting opportunity. And you describe that, is that what you describe when you refer to the American paradox? Yes, although that is the original theory behind that is not mine. That comes from a book called American Slavery, American Freedom that was published in the eight, uh, 1970s. And that, um, that argument that, that the, the historian made was that you could not, the founders could not have envisioned equality had they not written out of the body politic anybody that they considered unequal, either because their, um, their sex made them you know, inadequate to exercise any kind of um, self-determination, that would be women, or because of their poverty or because of their in status of enslavement. So he argued very uh, convinced, Edmund Morgan argued very convincingly that you could not have equality, they couldn't have envisioned equality if they had to deal with these undesirable members of society as part of the body, body politic. He was looking at uh, the, the relationship between African African American and black slaves in in uh, in the colonies and how white 
uh, enslavers and members of white society viewed that particular population. What I did was I took that idea and married it, if you will, to ideas of politics and, um, and the language of othering in politics and said it's not just about black and white. In fact, if you look at modern uh, studies of history, that the, the othering included indigenous peoples, first of all, who were also enslaved in America, but also women and after that, every kind of population that comes in and is considered somehow inferior. So rather than talking about racial issues as racial issues the way Morgan did, I'm looking at the structure, the American structure as one of power and one of political power that's garnered according to language. And um, so it's a, it's, I want to be clear that that, that first idea, that, that earth shattering idea was not mine. All I did was take it to a larger, um, a larger canvas and to say that what we really are concerned with here is power. And power is obviously tied to racism. It's also tied to sexism and to classism. And we have to recognize the tools of that power structure in order to understand how it undermines our fundamental uh, belief, the Americans' fundamental belief that everybody should be equal before the law and should have equal access to resources. Vince, uh, you know, Heather's characterization speaks to an important issue, which is the way in which power does translate into law. Uh, you're a dean of a law school, and we're seeing a lot in the country right now around how the law is playing into these issues, going back to the early days of our country through to the Civil War right to today. How do you see this from the point of view of a law school dean, a legal scholar, and a legal expert? What are some of your observations from that vantage point? Well, yeah, this is fascinating and so important. Uh, when you think about the founding, the American founding, and the founding of democratic republics, so you know, focusing primarily on the two most radical examples, the United States and France, the big idea was the overturning of hierarchy, right? You have completely destroyed the old order and you are limiting or you are eliminating, excuse me, status-based distinctions and other types of hierarchies that suppressed individual freedom. We are releasing the individual to be a member of this republic. But, you know, as Heather, as Heather has pointed out, um, that essentially meant that we were releasing white male property owners to participate in democracy in this country. But before we even get there, it's important to think about that, right? So this notion of individual autonomy, individual, individualized equality has been taken to a sort of extreme in this culture. We don't really see, and when we think about it through the law, we rarely see uh, any kind of counterbalancing to the idea that we pursue freedom in the law through a, a sort of an emancipation of the individual. Uh, and, you know, but the idea that the individual may have countervailing responsibilities uh, rarely comes up. And additionally, you know, as Heather mentioned, we had, we used status-based hierarchies to exclude other people from participating. So we didn't want to talk about that, but we, we were talking primarily about the individual's who uh, we've released, you know, from the old order. But in terms of how we envision the law working, it's primarily by sort of actualizing individual autonomy so that people in a system of equality can negotiate freely with one another about what they want and what they do. And because this eliminates a notion of collective responsibility, we start understanding why we, we have so much trouble talking about race and racism in this culture. culture. Um, if you want to put it uh, to a modern issue or current issue, look at the whole debate about mask wearing in this country. 
it's not all a surprise to me that the mask wearing issue uh, or that the pandemic is surging in the South and the West, following on Heather's theories and looking at it from the perspective of the law, what kinds of responses do you see from government officials in that part of the country in particular? You know, math forcing, quote, forcing people to wear a mask is an infringement on their personal freedom. We will not require, the law should not be used to require people to do things that they don't want. Now you could look at that another way and you would say, wait a minute, what is my responsibility as a citizen to others in the Republic to protect them and myself from a pandemic? And in order to do that, some limitations on my rights must occur. It's not about a special interest. It's not about an infringement. It is about a collective responsibility to protect all of us from a pandemic. Well, if you extrapolate from that, you can understand why we can't talk about race. You know, no one wants to take collective responsibility for the subjugation of a group of people in the society that allowed other people in the society to actualize their individual needs. Same with women, same with other uh, groups uh, that Heather has already mentioned. So um, American law does not deal well with recognizing the the status-based groups that they've already created and suppressed in the pursuit of freedom. It also does not have a a good history in thinking about the collective. And I would just point to some of what work my colleagues are doing in the Law School Vision Project. If folks want to see in individual areas of the law how this plays out and how destructive this has been and how, particularly during the pandemic, it's creating chaos and an inability for this country to actually fight it, uh, you know, you should check that out. But, you know, it's too much of one thing, too much of this individualism, too much of this libertarianism is destroying our ability to think collectively and to solve problems that are rooted in collective issues. Does, this go, does that go back, though, to the political and the, um, and the economic question, if you will, of reconstruction? I mean, you're describing this as a legal issue. I'm hearing you, and as usual, hearing a political issue and the fact that so much of, I think, our jurisprudence was put down in the 19th century, designed precisely to protect corporations against things like uh, government regulation and the idea of any kind of legal structure that that help not only, by the way, newly freed people, but also poor people in the South get educations. And the argument against that was it was going to cost white tax dollars. Oh, absolutely. Note how we in this country have turned the corporation into a person for legal reasons. And that allows the corporation to have these individualized rights and freedoms, for the most part, from. And that's the way we construct freedom in the American context and in American law. It's freedom from. It's always an, uh, you know, we don't, we want to be uh, liberated from the responsibility or from the sense that other people or other entities are telling us what we can do with our money, with our life, with our choices. And in some instances, that works well to give people agency, you know, by liberating them from hierarchies and status-based things. And we've seen bits and pieces. We saw some of that in, in, in Reconstruction, but then we saw the immediate blowback, as you've written about, uh, that put people back in their place. And um, yeah, so the idea that corporations might have responsibilities to, to the common good, that uh, you know, property owners might have responsibilities to the rest of us, despite the fact that they own their property. Ownership and uh, you know, individual rights do not give you an unfettered ability to do what you want. Uh, you know, those, response, those rights have to be exercised in the context of other collective responsibilities. But what we've seen in American law is this very aggressive push to liberate individuals from that. And of course, when we want to liberate wealthy people from that, we 
couch their rights in the context of freedom, individualism, you know? Any attempt to share is an undermining of your individual freedom and, you know, therefore unconstitutional. So, so does that just look, if you don't mind, one more question, because I love this stuff. So would you say, are you saying that so much of our, um, the, the roots of our racial issues in America stem from the legal interpretation of our economic issues? I definitely think they're related, right? Because if you, racism involves a collective problem that's rooted in this, a group of people being marked with a status that prevents them from exercising their individual rights because the status marks them as unequal or outside the main, the mainstream. So when you try to have a conversation about, well, wait a minute, we need a collective response to status-based discrimination of black people because whatever you give us as individual rights have to be exercised in the context that culturally and politically, you know, we are marked with a status that prevents us from fully engaging our rights uh, in the same way that white people do. Um, but that will require white people giving up some things or, you know, a corporation giving up some things. People might have to give up some of their economic gains and advantages. But what the response is, is, wait a minute, I earned those things on my own. And if you're taking them away from me, you are infringing my freedom. No conversation of how structures in the society, which have suppressed black people, women, others, liberated you to some extent to ex exercise your freedom in ways that we believe are you know, unjust or inappropriate. And to correct that will require a collective response. You have to recognize that a group of people has been discriminated against and freeing them individually through the law is not going to be enough without more. So yes, and so when you, you see the same kind of argument in the economic sphere, and I think what that does, it, it, it normalizes this kind of way of approaching legal questions, and it's just transferred from one segment to one sphere to the next. And so when, when black people or uh, other people who are discriminated against try to talk about the collective uh, suppression of their, based on status, those, those uh, arguments don't resonate. They don't, they sound like they're undermining American freedom, American liberty uh, for special interest, as you said. And so that, you know, Heather, you mentioned reconstruction and, and so much of this points to issues dating back to that. And you think about the 14th Amendment, which briefly opened the door to equality for African-Americans, but as you outlined in the book, that door was shut in part because of the dynamic you articulate between the South and what was happening in the West, which speaks to some of what Vince was just articulating. Is that, is that right, Heather? How do, you, how do you sort of articulate for people who haven't yet read your book and aren't familiar with this period, the way in which that political movement, that you know, shift of power was a way of putting down some of what was happening and the legal ramifications of the 14th Amendment and, and reverting back to prior norms? Well, I'd like to, I mean, I answer that, but I want to, I want to start, Vince, on thinking along one line. I mean, it's interesting, this late 19th century stuff, that Stephen Field is actually huge in, um, in setting up our legal system the way it was in the late 19th century for making corporations the be-all and end-all of everything. And he, of course, is a Westerner. Um, and he's from California. And there's, I mean, there's great stories about Stephen Field. But, but um, 
what, what I argued was that the 14th Amendment is taken on the way it is in the East in order to try and level the playing field between African-American men and white men. And of course, there's a later argument that women should be included, but, um, but that doesn't obtain in 1868. But, but at that very moment, when it comes time to ratify the 14th, a number of Western territories and states say, we're happy to ratify this so long as it just means Black people because they don't really have that many black people in, um, in the West immediately in, in, in those years, 65, 66, 67, 68, simply because so many of the Western states were um, not slave states. So they didn't actually have African-Americans in them because they were free states before the war or territories. The territories are organized during the war. So literally there are a couple of state legislatures who say, you know, we'll, we'll ratify this so long as you can promise us it doesn't include the Chinese. And nobody believes it's going to include indigenous people. I mean, they just want no part of that at all. And Mexicans and Mexican-Americans, because, of course, the, the boundary has moved in the West after 1848. It's literally moved across the people who live there. They were Mexican. Now they're American. But the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo is a, a little bit vague about when it's not really vague about when it's supposed to happen. But the, the details of how it happens are very much contested in this period. So a lot of Westerners look at the 14th Amendment and they're like, yeah, sure, we're totally on board with you guys back east saying that black men and white men are equal even though we're against the idea of what they by 1871 are going to be calling communism or socialism the idea that any kind of a program designed to level that playing field for real either through education or through hospitals and roads and all the things that the newly free population needs as long as as well as the poor whites by the way um, they actually literally call that socialism or communism because it's going to take white tax dollars and by 1866 you've got Andrew President Andrew Johnson for example but other people as well simply saying all you're doing is redistributing wealth and this is putting poor people on top the people who used to hoe the fields and they're tying racism to classism and um, and saying we are creating socialism and communism by 1871 there's a reason it's that date but in the West, they look at that and they say, you guys can do whatever you want back East with your whole communist structure, because out here, we're still the original individuals. I mean, all we are is individual guys who are working our way up and we don't want the government involved. And their symbol of that, of course, is the cowboy. But if you think of the American cowboy from the beginning, he has uh, had the, the trappings of being alone not having the, in a sort of a bromance with the other cowboys, you know, they don't have women involved. They don't, although historians will tell you that uh, in order to rise in the American West, you had to have kinship ties. So intermarriage is enormously important for any kind of economic success or social success in the West. Uh, but you have the cowboy with, um, with his, um, his male dominated world, and again, you can see this in Frederick Jackson Turner, there are no women in his frontier thesis. Um, but you also have inherent in the cowboy his overcoming of what they at the time would have called savages, that's indigenous people, and the erasure of African Americans at all, and most brown Americans as well from that world. And there are very few, if any, Chinese um, or any Western Islanders, for example, in, in any of the images of the cowboy. So you have this cultural image that rises by the 1860s, and you not paying a ton of attention to it really except as a cultural image until after 1889 when it's very clear that the south is going to become solidly democratic and somehow the republicans have to pick up 
more electoral votes. And that's how we get the addition of six new Western states between 1888 and 1890, which is huge in American history. It's our biggest acquisition of states since the original 13. So that whole, and then that means that in order to court in order to control the Eastern Congress, you must control the West. And all of a sudden, those images of uh, a hierarchical society in which that individual white man who, sta but who stands against any kind of government activism in order to help um, or to level the playing field with populations that are not otherwise included in the body politic or in the economic system, that starts to become really an important aspect of American political history. And Westerners work with Southerners in that period after 1890, not only to stop anti-lynching legislation, which we always blame the South for, but it's actually stopped by William Bora of Idaho, who's in the, the chair of the, of the Senate uh, Judiciary Committee, they start to work um, together to stop um, the idea of uh, a colorblind or a, a genderblind inclusion in the body politic. And interestingly enough, you will have in the, 18, the late 1890s, 19 aughts, a move in the West to get rid of the 15th and the 14th Amendments. Because they're like, well, wait a minute, we don't we here in the West, we're getting powerful and we don't want Chinese people included in anything. So why on earth should Southerners have to include African-Americans in anything? And that combination right there, that resurgence of that hierarchical society gives it a foothold that really enables it to take off after, um, after World War I, but really after World War II with the second civil rights movement, not simply amongst African-Americans, but also um, you know, the, the um, American GI Forum under Dr. Hector Garcia in moving the, um, the Latinx population and the indigenous population and women, that ideology is ready to mobilize again really profoundly in that era. And that I think is what we're living with right now. And so do you see, I mean, what you're describing strikes me as really political shifts, shifts of society. And, you know, in terms of right now, do you see, do either of you see parallels between what's happening now and some of what we've seen in the past? Well, I mean, absolutely. I think, um, you know, it's interesting to look at this moment uh, that we're in right now and sort of go back, say, to the 1960s um, or that post-war period, really, that period after World War II, where you did see, uh, and, and, and Heather writes about this, you know, and it, an emerging liberal consensus, you know. Uh, so after World War II, there was a lot of progress on racial issues uh, because uh, there was a recognition that the government needed to be an actor uh, in support of the needs of the collective and that, you know, obligations had to be imposed on certain people to make them do the right thing, as it were. Uh, so you get, um, you know, the integration of the armed forces, you get, um, you know, the, the civil rights legislation in the 1960s. Uh, and, you know, you see a, a shift. Uh, and part of that shift was because lots of white people in the country were benefiting from government action, right? The government was doing things like the VA loan and the FHA loan, and they were doing, uh, you know, the, the GI Bill, expanding education. So, you know, this, this rising tide was allowed to lift more boats uh, because, you know, I think white middle class in particular was seeing the benefits of, of aggressive intervention by the government on behalf of everyone. Uh, and of course, uh, there was a backlash to that around 1980 and when Reagan was elected, 
uh, and movement conservatism, as Heather also describes very well, uh, you know, sort of seized its moment. But before we even get there, you know, I think we see these cycles, right? We see these shifts from this aggressive individualism. So that preceded the depression, you know, where we, you know, we have the this, uh, you know, the rise of uh, the robber barons and the Gilded Age, and then we move into from an economic perspective. And the law is very supportive of all that. You know, we had a court, uh, a Supreme Court at the time in the early 20th century, that in many ways is is only matched by the current court in terms of how conservative it was and how uh, focused it was on, uh, you know, releasing and indi releasing individuals from responsibility and you know enhancing individual uh, power. And so there we see the rise of all this wealth through the 1920s. The economy collapses, there's a backlash. You know, there's this sense that someone's got to fix this. The government is in the only real meaningful position to fix this. And people become more comfortable with the notion when they see what the government can do and how, you know, the law can be used to, you know, provide things that we all need. They're more comfortable with the notion of blacks and women and Latinx folks having some additional rights because again, everyone is benefiting. Maybe we're at a similar moment again, where we're seeing something of an economic collapse and a whole rethinking of how the economy is supposed to work, uh, and everyone needs help, and everyone is now sort of focused on structural problems that only the government really can fix. And this is why it's really uh, a bit concerning for many people, the, the situation we're facing right now with the dysfunction in Washington, because, you know, it doesn't matter how much freedom you give individuals, you know, individuals cannot address the needs the country has during a pandemic. Uh, and, uh, you know, the government needs to act. And we see, you know, the difference between how this pandemic has been addressed in the European Union versus the United States. And, you know, the numbers make it very clear that they've been, they've been able to accomplish things that we are nowhere near being able to do uh, because of a very different vision about how the government is supposed to relate to society. So uh, there are many, many parallels we could draw. And I think we as Americans have to start facing the reality that there is something structurally very wrong with what we have allowed to happen. Uh, and if we as a, as a community, as, as citizens do not respond and you know, push for a very different view of how you know, the government is supposed to engage these kinds of problems on behalf of all of us, you know, we're, we're doomed, I think, to a situation where the country will continue to decline. So, uh, this is one of those moments, hopefully it will, you know, be seized upon and we'll start seeing change. But I think you can only look at it if you understand the history. And I think what Heather has done very effectively is demonstrated to us that, you know, the issue of race and the issue of status and the issue of uh, privilege for certain people in this country has always been with us. Uh, and if we aren't willing to look it in the face and to, and to basically dismantle it, we'll, we'll swing right, right back. We always have. Can I ask you a question about this, though? You know, there's a very famous book um, called The Strange Career of Jim Crow that argues that the changes in, um, I mean, it was an argument about the, the late 19th century, but of course he was writing, someone inadvertently I've understood, actually, he was writing about the second civil rights movement. And the argument in The Strange Career of Jim Crow is that the way you create societal change first is by changing the law, that the law anticipates changes in society. And um, I'm not sure I agree with that at all. I actually think it's the other way around. Do you have an opinion about that? Yeah, I do. I mean, I don't think there's an easy answer to that question. I think it's sometimes yes and sometimes no. I think often if the law is, if the society is not ready for what the law has proposed, 
uh, you enter a period of real, uh, you know, dissension and sometimes disrespect for the law. Uh, and, you know, you, you, don't, you don't make any real progress. And I mean, I think in the case, so for instance, um, I mean, Reconstruction set up through the Constitution, you know, a legal environment that was probably pretty radical for the time. Um, but, you know, in, and in places where the ramifications of that were going to be deeply felt, we saw a very violent and vicious reaction. Uh, you know, you don't get the same kind of reaction in the North because actually the, the, the consequences of giving Black people those freedoms were, were less dramatic. Uh, but, you know, if you, so I think other things also matter, like what's happening in the economy. So in the second civil rights movement, I think it's really important that after World War II, we have an economic expansion and we have a sense of possibility. People feel comfortable and, uh, you know, that, that the possibilities are, are there for their children. And so I think they're much more willing to accommodate the needs of people outside their immediate groups. You know, they're more uh, capacious in their understanding of what the society can do. I mean, if you had tried to pass those laws in a different economic environment, and actually you see in the 1930s during the depression when uh, FDR is actually pushing some of those things, he's pushed back, right? Uh, you know, the, um, the uh, WPA, WPA and these other federal programs uh, that were initially designed to, you know, uh, offer opportunities to everyone regardless of race were often resegregated, right? Because the society was not ready uh, to, for those things to happen. But after the war, they were. So I don't know if there's an easy relationship between the law actually being a leading indicator or the law being a lagging one. Well, you know, it's a funny thing about that, though, is that in both of those cases, you know, the, polit the politicians who were in office really mattered because you can imagine the Reconstruction Amendments being very widely accepted with Lincoln in office. Um, the fact that Andrew Johnson went out and he urged people to fight back against them was a huge deal. And the other thing that, that really shocks me about the 1950s is that, of course, there's an enormous backlash against Brown v. Board of Education, which, which uh, calls for the desegregation of public schools with all deliberate speed. But the 1950s were just ducky in terms of the economy. I mean, that was the highest GNP we've ever had. So the fact that, that you actually had politicians if you will, permitted to, to fight back against that stuff. Uh, it, it just strikes me that there may be, who we elect is maybe really key. Because I would say you're absolutely right that if you look at our major periods of reform in America, it's always been when people have money, always. I mean, that's the common denominator. But whether or not it plays out the way the uh, 1950s did or the way you know, the 1940s did really depends on who's in power. No, I definitely think that's true. And, you know, we're seeing recently this whole debate about Woodrow Wilson, right? And, you know, Washington and the federal government have been desegregated rather successfully. Um, and uh, a pretty stable, uh, well-integrated, you know, by the times, uh, standards of the times, middle uh, black middle class had evolved in Washington. And Woodrow Wilson came in and undid all of it. And uh, Astonishing just, you know, sent people, you know, packing in a sense and destroyed lots of lives and lots of families in the process. You know, people who had built careers in the federal government and we didn't really get that back, you know, until 
probably, well, until the 40s, the 30s and 40s, you know, slow beginnings in the 30s and then really in the 40s. Um, so you're absolutely right. The leader matters uh, a lot. Were, were there lawsuits of the, the resegregation of D.C.? There were some lawsuits. Um, I'm not familiar with a lot of the specific ones. I was just reading, there was a piece about five years ago that was republished in the Times about um, uh, a family that was affected by this, uh, the Davis family. And, um, you know, a lot of people just had no means to, to fight it, you know, because they lost their property, they lost their jobs. Um, and, uh, you know, I think the, the tie, there wasn't really, I mean, Washington was still segregated socially in a lot of ways. I don't think the courts were a, a particularly effective vehicle for, um, for recourse. Uh, but by the 1940s, there was a big change. And actually, uh, here's a place where the Catholic Church really intervened. Uh, in the 1940s, uh, the Archbishop of Washington actually desegregated the Catholic schools well before Brown v. Board of Education and the Catholic schools in Maryland, in the parts of Maryland that abut Washington. So uh, there was actually rapid desegregation uh, in that region, probably because it was a relatively wealthy part of the country because of the presence of the federal government, highly educated for, most, for the most part, you know, relative to other places. And there was much less resistance, but just across the river in Virginia, it was a very different story. So uh, it's, it's, it's an interesting uh, time period to think about. In terms of these societal shifts, uh, an area we really haven't touched on is higher education. Uh, and we've gotten to a you know, little bit of a way of getting into this is when we think about when you mentioned the role that activism plays, that social shifts play, obviously young people at times are very much at the for forefront of that. We're seeing today a real, what feels to me like a resurgence of student activism, uh, driving a lot of social change and moving the dialogue in different directions. Would either of you comment on that and maybe uh, talk a little bit about the role you see for higher education in the issues of the day as we combat racism and racial justice? You want to start, Heather? I just talked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know I've been putting you through your paces, but it's still, you know, I don't know about, about anybody listening to this, but there's so much in our lives right now that hinges around the law and so often it's kind of arcane. And, and for people like me to be able to just ask an, a law dean, like, what does this really mean? Is like, like you know, like being a kid in a candy shop. I agree. Um, so I know, and Jim, I talked all over you just because no. once again, I, can, I can, you know, this is like my chance to ask a law professor everything. Um, so there's a couple of things going on right now that I think are really important about student activism. And I do want to speak to that. But one of, you know, I tend to take a broad view of society when I look at it. And um, which I do a lot. And the thing that really jumps out at me right now is that we are in this bizarre period in American history and in American political history, where one of our major parties is operating in a, a world that doesn't exist. I mean, it's, it's a narrative-based world. And you saw this really dramatically during the George W. Bush administration when Ron Susskind got that amazing quotation from a member of that administration where the, the person turned to him and said, you know, you people, meaning Ron Suskind and journalism, live in, a, in the reality-based community. And we don't live in that any longer. We are an empire now, and this quote is off the top of my head, but they went and say, you know, we are an empire now and we create our own reality. And the, the, that, that reality that they have created has become increasingly divorced from the world that the rest of us live in, in part because of our political system that has encouraged extremism on that in the Republican Party. Um, but also simply because um, 
the their their to win office you had to become more and more extreme because of gerrymandering for example which always privileges people on the fringes rather than people in the center and we've had this this party going farther and farther and farther off the rails and with the modern uh moment we're in politically I think people have woken up to that and said, this is not reality. You know, the economy is not good. Even before we've had the crash triggered by COVID-19, a lot of people were working three jobs and discovering they didn't have that $400 in the bank that the studies say you needed to have to meet an emergency. And they recognized the economy wasn't good and that their lives had not in fact gotten better since 1981 when uh, wealth started moving upward dramatically. And people started looking at this and thinking, you know, we, got, we, we have a problem here. Here. And then COVID hit. And with COVID hitting and the absolute divorce between the ideology that said, this is not a problem, it's going to go away, where our numbers are going down, and the reality of the fact that we are the world's epicenter for this disease with 4% of the population and 25% of the deaths, people are willing once again to examine what reality is. And that's where we come in. I mean, that's what academia does, is it looks for, for the facts, it looks for reality. And that, um, I think, is one of the reasons that we have presented um, a danger to people living in their narrative-driven reality, and why uh, there are people in that community that have created these professor watch lists, for example, saying that people like me are dangerous because we're actually looking at what happened on the ground. Um, uh, but with that drive to, re to live once again in a reality-based community, we're the keepers of that flame. We're the people who say, you know, this is the truth and we're searching for it and that we argue with each other. So that just because I can sit here and say that C. Van Woodward's book, Strange Career of Jim Crow, says that the law is important, Vince can come back and, and, and say, well, no, you've got to have society changing first. And then we can argue our positions and we can maybe convince each other or maybe not. But that entire enterprise of searching for reality and being able to argue with each other about what reality is, is not simply a political stance today. It is, in, sen in a sense, a philosophical and a moral stance. The idea that in order to achieve human self-determination, but also any kind of a, of a, of a, a community based in, in fairness, justice, and morality, you actually have to grapple with what's real. And we are the community that has consistently done that, even when we have been under attack for being too far to the left or too far to the right or whatever people say about us. And that gives us at this moment, I think, uh, a really powerful voice. Now, in terms of, of student activism, both at Boston College and elsewhere, this moment, I think, is their moment in the sense that they are really on the front lines of saying, look at the world you're handing to us. You know, the world that you kept saying that you were creating was never real. And now you're handing us a world where we can't make enough money to pay our, our uh, educational expenses, we can't afford health care, we're not sure we're going to get jobs, the environment is in the toilet, you know, our political system is being torn apart, and we're dying, they're stepping up to the plate and saying, this is not what we see as a just world. And I actually find it enormously exciting. I think it's going to unseat and unsettle a lot of people, but that's really what the world is about. And that being said, 
that gives, I think, the university another important role. And that is the reminder of the traditions that have worked in the past, not simply the ones that have not, but the ones that have worked. And there we have uh, the dean over there at the law school. What do you have to say about this? <laughs> and, a, and, a dean, and a dean who's responsible for this forum, which is right in the center of all of this. So Vince, is, is, is higher education still able to be the keeper of the flame that Heather references? And how are you thinking about this as you think about the forum? Well, I mean, absolutely, I think we can be, but I do, have to, I do think we have to recognize the ways in which we may have been consciously or unconsciously complicit in the problems that we are now presented with in terms of how we understand our role. Uh, you know, if you're thinking about income inequality and the, uh, the devastating impact that's having on our society, uh, you know, well, the cost of university educations is a big part of what is crushing the dreams of many people, particularly, uh, you know, lower income and middle class people about their ability to actually access what we offer. And that might also fuel or allow them to be a little bit more receptive to the kinds of messages that are being sent by some people in our political system that, you know, the universities are really a problem and experts are a problem and you shouldn't believe what they have to say. So we have to be conscious of that. And I think particularly for BC, there are some really exciting things that we can do. I mean, we have a mission and a tradition that is at the founding of this institution that thinks in very interesting and complex ways about the nature of justice. It does not think of justice in purely individual terms. It thinks of it in uh, collective terms as well. And you know, so we have a whole language around social justice uh, that uh, will be very, very useful right now in terms of thinking about these kinds of problems. So we can frame our engagement with the issues in, in, a, in a moral language that is also accessible to people across a wide range of backgrounds uh, that speaks in very different ways about these problems than the way our politicians talk about them, particularly our politicians on the right. And so that's the first step. And I think from there, we start using the incredible, you know, scholarly power, uh, you know, that we have here, the, the, the academic power we have here to do exactly what Heather said. I mean, we start diving into these problems from the perspective of recognizing that this is a structural problem, it's a social justice problem, it's a problem that requires collective action, uh, and uh, we need to first of all confront arguments that try to frame it otherwise. Um, and you know, for those of us in the law school, for instance, we have to start talking about some of the legal solutions that have been proffered to some of our key problems are inadequate to the task or perhaps are actually pushing forward a very different agenda that is uh, you know, in uh, direct contrast to what we're trying to do. Uh, and so we're gonna have to talk about some hard things, but that's what universities do. Um, and we're gonna have to deal with some foundational questions about what are the kind of givens we accept as Americans about the way our society is supposed to work? And are those things really based in reality? Or are they you know, sort of tropes that we throw around to uh, make ourselves feel good about being American, but in fact, the evidence is pointing to something very different. You know, we do not provide very good um, movement, economic movement for those at the bottom to the top. We are way below most of our economic peers in terms of one's ability to rise. The data prove that. It's all over, every, you know, it's easy to find, but we still believe that if you work hard in the United States, you can, you know, you can make your way to the top. Well, the data don't support that, you know, so, uh, you know, we need to talk more about that and why that is and whether or not that's something we want to change, just as one example. So I have a lot of confidence in what we can do institutionally and what we can do as a university. And I'm very, very glad that young people are pushing us to do it because this is the world they are going to inherit. And they have a right 
to help shape it. Yeah, and it's, and it's good to see that they are forcing the dialogue in a way that causes us to look inward as much as outward. And I'll just say we're at the nearly at the end of our hour. I think we could have spent another hour on any one of these topics, but I, I want to give you both the final word. And I'll, you know, Vince began to touch on some of this. So I'll start with you, Heather, and then come back to Vince on just the question of looking ahead. What are the things that are your greatest sort of sources of hope as you think about where we're going as a society, what the road ahead may look like, and uh, what allows you to sort of wake up in the morning and, and feel good and positive about what's, uh, what lies ahead for us? This is an easy one for me. The, what is exciting to me is that Americans have woken up and realized that democracy is not a spectator sport. And people are getting involved. They're getting involved not only with their voices and their feet, but also running for office and recognizing that what who we put in office really matters and that we need to have more voices and especially younger voices. And I recognize that that's going to be very, very traumatic for a lot of people and very difficult for a lot of people. But it is also, as Abraham Lincoln said, the, the root of innovation and of guaranteeing that our democracy really can address challenges. And I have absolute faith in the way that our, our, that ordinary Americans will take this country. I, I don't think they're, I'm going to agree with them 100% of the time, but that doesn't mean I'm right. It means that this is how our system works, and I have faith in it. Yeah, I would agree, and I would just add, I'm so excited about uh, the reclaiming of our collective history, uh, the, the rewriting of our history in a narrative that really is based in reality, but also, you know, places all of us uh, in, in the narrative and makes sure that we understand that there were bad things that happened, you know, and the fact that we didn't participate in them directly does not mean that we don't have a responsibility to understand them, to think about what they mean for us now, and to dismantle them if that's what we need to do. But we can only do that if we're willing to really confront the realities of, of the history that we share as Americans uh, in a meaningful way and to engage that work and to engage in real conversations that hear the realities of what that has meant for the lives of many of us in this country. Lives that do not match a lot of the narratives that have been out there or a lot of the tropes that have been out there about what, it, what American society is all about. And if we can do that, I think we're gonna build a much, much better society in the future. And I can only feel helpful, hopeful and, and grateful for that. Well, let me end by thanking you both. You're both leaders of real consequence, not just at Boston College, but really in our society right now. And uh, to both of you, I want to thank you for the way in which you spur dialogue and which you illuminate issues of our time. Vince, to you, I will say, I, I know a lot is on your shoulders as the inaugural director of this forum. Um, we are all here to help. I'm guessing you have no shortage of ideas, uh, but if there are things we can do to be helpful as part of that process, we're really all in this together. Uh, and I want to thank both of you for being with us today. Uh, and to those of you who joined us today, thank you for taking the time to be with us on today's Beacon Leadership Conversation. Have a great rest of the day, everyone. Thank you. Thank you.